you beautiful bastards. Welcome back to the Philip DeFranco Show and uh, a quick announcement. So as some of you have already seen, yesterday I uploaded a brand new bonus Philip DeFranco Show on a Sunday. All new stories are big and important ones. I definitely recommend you check it out after today's show. But I mentioned that because it's a part of a new thing that I want to test, which is a brand new video on this channel every single day. I'm not promising we'll always do this, but this week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, full Philip DeFranco shows as usual. And then Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, there will be a new video on the channel where we talk about at least one or several stories. All available for free as per usual, though you can show that love by getting yourself some gear over at beautifulbastard.com. I love naps, emotionally exhausted, go easy on yourself. But hey, with that said, let's jump into it. Starting with Scott Adams, the creator of the Dilbert comic strip, is uh, he's having himself a week. And that, because he put out a YouTube video where he responds to Erasmus and Poll, where it found that a quarter of black Americans disagree with the statement, it's okay to be white, with another 21% saying they're not sure. And Scott shared his thoughts on the data. If, you know, nearly half of all blacks uh, are not okay with white people, according to this poll, not according to me, according to this poll, uh, that's a hate group. That's a hate group. And I don't want to have anything to do with them. Now, also, to be clear here, in, in the wake of this, some have criticized the poll's methodology, arguing, for example, that the question is loaded. Or because asking, do you agree with the statement, it's okay to be white, rather than just, do you think it's okay to be white, frames it differently. They're saying that it'd be like uh, asking, do you agree with the statement, all lives matter, where people see it as politically loaded and feel obliged to disagree. So that's why people saying, is it okay to be white, can be met with kind of a, a similar suspicion, especially since today's right wing often believes that white people are being persecuted. With Adams seemingly among this group, and in fact, he feels so under attack that he says this. The best advice I would give to white people is to get the hell away from black people. Just get the fuck away. Because there's no fixing this. This can't be fixed. So that's what I did. I went to a neighborhood where you know, I have a very low black population. With the creator of Dilbert going on to say that neighborhoods with higher concentrations of black people have more problems and a lower quality of living. Also saying that he's sick of seeing videos of black people beating up non-black people and that every time he tries to help black America, he just gets called a racist, so he's done trying. So I, I think it makes no sense whatsoever as a uh, white citizen of America to try to help black citizens anymore. So all of that goes viral, and in response, hundreds of Dilbert syndicators and major newspapers from the Chicago Tribune and the LA Times or the San Francisco Chronicle and the Washington Post, they dropped the comic. And just like that, after three decades, done, gone. And in response to this, we saw the likes of Elon Musk jumping into the mix, tweeting that US media, colleges, and high schools were racist against non-whites before, but now they're racist against white people and Asians. Also agreeing with a tweet arguing that Adams's comments weren't good, but have the element of truth in them. Also deleting a post where he asked, what exactly are they complaining about? Oh, so as far as what Adams is doing now, he's still speaking, putting out tweets this morning like, I've lost three careers to direct racism so far, Crocker Bank, Pacific Bell, and Cartooning. All three were perpetuated by white people for their own gain. No black person and has ever discriminated against me. That's partly why I identified as black for several years. And I I, I got, I, I don't know how to respond <laughs> to that tweet. So yeah, uh, I guess we'll wait to see what happens from here. And then Aiden Ross, the voice of a generation is being unjustly persecuted. This, according to the warped, deluded brain inside of Aiden. So Aiden, who is yet to be accused by anyone for being too smart, at least uh, by people that do not have brain injuries, he's been having himself a little time as of late. He's an absolutely massive streamer. He's also kind of become uh, Andrew Tate's lackey over the last several months or year. And since his buddy got snatched up by the Romanian authorities, some have said he's gone off the deep end, which in part has been seen as why he's kind of testing out the waters with this new streaming service, Kick. He says they have more lax rules, that he can stream pretty much anything. And the form that has taken recently is uh, pretty special. For one, he live streamed the Super Bowl to around 100,000 concurrent viewers, talked about trying to get his Nazi buddy Nick Fuentes over on the platform, as well as deciding it'd just be fun to have a watch party uh, for porn. What do y'all want to watch, bro? I don't support porn. Like I don't, I don't support the shit. 
the fuck do y'all want to watch on here, bro? I don't support the shit. I don't condone it. I don't support it. With an audience seemingly full of minors. Wait, how old are you guys in the chat, bro? Jesus, I didn't know that. Ray doesn't say it out loud, but it appears that many in the chat answer his question and they're well under the age of 18. Though also here, some reports have claimed that he turned on age restrictions for the stream. That also resulted in this fun little moment where you had people like Jake Lucky tweeting out the clip, with Aiden seemingly not happy about that, and a screenshot then going around where Aiden says, keep yourself safe, which some say is a super ominous and threatening thing in its own right, but others also noting if you take the first letter, it's KYS, kill yourself. And seemingly with this, Aiden is moving over to Kick, posting a video a few days ago announcing this. And then following that, we saw that Aiden got banned from Twitch for the eighth time. This time, it reportedly being permanent, which, if he was already leaving, probably wouldn't bother him that much. Except, no, he makes a very big deal about it. If I have blue hair and did my makeup, would you have banned me, Twitch? And I was with this saying, if he was someone else, this wouldn't have happened. I'm permanently banned on Twitch. It's done. It's already done. But I got permanently banned for no reason. At all. Though he did later say there was a reason, he just didn't think the reason made sense, but declined then to go into further detail for legal reasons. You know, the biggest standout of the story is just how he's victimizing himself in this. Like, I think he's within 24 hours of saying he's like MLK. Gonna drop his own I have a dream speech. But also, I will say, this doesn't come at a great time for Twitch. There are reports coming out now saying that Twitch's viewership has dropped around 10% in the past year. Well, I think part of that can be connected to viewership habits changing post-pandemic. You do also have to consider new competitors like Kick popping up as well as YouTube acquiring top talent over the past two years. And some of that talent actually successfully migrating their audiences and thriving. Though I wouldn't say that's universal, but it is very notable. But ultimately, that's where we are, and we'll have to wait to see what happens. And then, in entertainment news, Jake Paul took the L, fighting with and losing to Tommy Fury over the weekend. While the internet was celebrating what they saw as the downfall of a, like, a comic book villain, I personally couldn't help but feel like people were like missing the forest for the trees. That is, a lot of people missing the larger situation, because if you really look at this, Jake Paul has set himself up in a situation where he cannot lose even when he loses. As far as ego, even though Jake Paul was outboxed the entire fight, he didn't get knocked out, he didn't even get knocked down, thanks to a last round knockdown, even though Fury was only down for a second, and I guess one of the judges smoking crack so that he actually gave the fight to Jake Paul, so it was a split decision rather than a unanimous decision, he gets to save face some there. But more importantly, Jake Paul understands how many people hate him. He understands that people want to see him fail. They want to see him get knocked out. And that hate is so strong that tons of people were willing to pay $50 to watch the pay-per-view, which had Jake Paul getting a guaranteed $3.2 million plus a reported 65% of the pay-per-view profits. So that's why you have some places estimating that he made over $8 million from this fight. Jake Paul even posting today that he made $30 million. I don't know how much we can believe those numbers, which is why I've been saying since the beginning, he is setting himself up for situations where even when he loses he wins massively. I don't know about you, I would take eight to $30 million to take a public L. Cause when I take public L's, I just have like a bad weekend or month and everything else just stays the same. Now, as far as what happens next, is there a rematch with Fury? I don't know. Like they might do it. I doubt it would be as successful. It seemed like the big appeal with this fight was the unknown, like where are their skill levels at? And then the other, which I think is still interesting to a lot of people, even though Jake Paul lost, would be Jake Paul versus KSI. Because even though he lost here, he's still widely seen as the best YouTube boxer. And then before we go any further, let's talk about something very important to me, your health. Chances are you've woken up before with a sore throat, rash, or other symptom and immediately head over to see what TikTok or Google says. And before you know it, you're convinced I'm dying because right? the internet's just got too much information. So why not talk to someone who is actually qualified? And well, thanks to the sponsor of today's show, ZocDoc, you can. ZocDoc helps you find doctors, dentists, and other medical professionals that specialize in the care that you need. And ZocDoc is the only free app that lets you find and book doctors who are patient reviewed, take your insurance or available when you need them and treat almost every condition under the 
sun. It's so convenient and it makes finding quality care so much easier, saving you hours that you would have spent trying to find the right doctor. And ZocDoc frees up even more of your time by showing you when doctors are available. No more running around and trying to fit in your appointment during your lunch break. So just go to ZocDoc.com slash Phil and download the ZocDoc app for free. And then just find and book a top-rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C.com slash Phil. ZocDoc.com slash Phil. And then South Park is at the center of an absolutely massive lawsuit between two major companies right now. So for some background, back in 2019, the streaming rights for South Park, a Comedy Central program owned by Paramount, were up for grabs. And HBO Max, which is owned by Warner Bros, ended up getting the exclusive rights to stream South Park as part of a $500 million deal. And that HBO deal covered all 23 seasons of South Park that were completed at the time, as well as three new seasons set to be made in the future. With those seasons, each reportedly supposed to be at least 10 episodes long. But now, we're seeing Warner Bros suing Paramount for violating that half a billion dollar deal, saying they didn't get what was promised. Claiming Paramount breached the contract by putting South Park specials on its own streaming service, Paramount Plus. And adding that instead of getting 10 new episodes for each of the three new seasons, HBO Max only got a handful for each, totaling 14 across all three. And because new episodes are worth more than older ones, Warner Bros. says that it's severely overpaid for the library. Also, the lawsuit takes issue with a massive $900 million deal South Park creators Trey Parker and Matt Stone signed with a Paramount subsidiary back in 2021. With that deal, including South Park spinoff movies made for Paramount Plus, and four of them are actually already on Paramount Plus with two aptly named South Park The Streaming Wars Parts 1 and 2. But Warner Bros. argues that this new content should have fallen under the HBO Max deal and should have been streamed there, not on Paramount Plus. And in fact, accusing Paramount of using verbal trickery by classifying the new content as movies, films, or events instead of episodes, saying this was a deliberate effort to weasel out of applying to the HBO Max deal, or because new episodes would very explicitly belong to HBO Max. So you have HBO Max releasing a statement saying, we believe that Paramount and South Park Digital Studios embarked on a multi-year scheme of unfair trade practices and deception, flagrantly and repeatedly breaching our contract, which clearly gave HBO Max exclusive streaming rights to the existing library and new content from the popular animated comedy South Park. Now, for their part, Paramount says that these allegations are without merit, and adding that it's adhering to the contract, despite the fact that Warner Bros. Discovery has failed and refused to pay license fees that it owes to Paramount for episodes that have already been delivered and which HBO Max continues to stream. And understand, this isn't like some little, small dispute. Not only is it a massive property, but this could impact future streaming licensing deals. Or if it goes in Paramount's favor, do studios with existing deals try to use the same loophole? Or if the contract specifically says it has to produce episodes for one streaming service, will studios all of a sudden say, hey, we're making movies or variety specials for another? And then, this could be the end of academic freedom in Florida, or at least what's left of it. Last week, Republicans pre-filed a bill, HB 999, in the House before the legislative session begins next month, and it's already shocking educators. With Jeremy C. Young from the free speech advocacy group PEN America tweeting, HB 999 would enact the most draconian and censorious restrictions on higher education in the history of this country. First off, it outright bans, quote, any major or minor in critical race theory, gender studies, or intersectionality, or any derivative major or minor of these belief systems. Next, it bans colleges and universities from funding or supporting any programs or campus activities that espouse diversity, equity, and inclusion, or critical race theory. Then, general ed or core classes will be banned from presenting American history, quote, contrary to the creation of a new nation based on universal principles stated in the Declaration of Independence, and adding that such course cannot feature, quote, identity politics such as critical race theory. And to top it off, they also cannot have a curriculum based on, quote, unproven theoretical or exploratory content. Which is why you had people going, wait, so like, science? But also, very notably, this bill doesn't just target content. It will also put all hiring decisions in the hands of each university's board of trustees, which are predominantly appointed by Ron DeSantis and his Republican allies. And another key thing is that any member of that board can also call for the review of any faculty member's tenure at any time for any reason. With all of that being the reason why Young went on to declare, HB 999 would end academic freedom, shared governance, and university independence in Florida's public higher education in favor of one man's authoritarian control of public university decisions. It would be the end of Florida higher ed as a space of open inquiry and free expression. You also saw resistance to the bill and similar measures from students 
students themselves with a statewide walkout late last week at colleges across Florida. You know, this is just the culmination of a years-long plan by DeSantis to reshape education and his image. And it appears that schools have begun buckling under the pressure, with the University of Florida's president appearing to warn faculty that violating the, quote, Stop Woke Act, which severely curtails discussion of race and gender in higher education, it could cost the institution millions of dollars. Right, that was last May, and not long afterward, the state administered an ideological survey to students, faculty, and staff, which critics called a political litmus test that threatened academic freedom. And then this year, we saw the new College of Florida Board of Trustees ousting its president in favor of a former Republican politician, with this capping off Ron's push to transform the board itself, with 11 of the 13 seats now appointed either by him or the Republican-led Florida Board of Governors, with the other two left over coming from the student body and the faculty. And most recently, presidents from 28 state colleges signed a joint letter promising to, quote, not fund or support any institutional practice, policy, or academic requirement that compels belief in critical race theory or related concepts. And as for what's next year, we have to see how future drafts of the legislation change, then if it passes, it'll certainly get challenged in the courts. But also, it's important to remember that this doesn't stop with Florida. Right? Ron's possibly running for president, and even if he doesn't, he's setting the example for conservative culture warriors across America. And then, the bill targeting drag shows just passed the state house in Tennessee, and while it is in no way the only bill in the country right now aimed at starting a war on drag shows, it does stand out. And that's for a number of reasons, so let's break it down. Right, so the Tennessee bill would ban what it calls adult-oriented entertainment from public spaces and limit it to age-restricted venues, classifying male and female impersonators as adult cabaret performers. Also notably, it could apply to other shows like go-go dancing and stripping. The first offense would be a misdemeanor crime, and a subsequent one would be a felony punished by one to six years in prison, with people pointing out there could be wide-ranging consequences to this, including its ability to impact pride celebrations, or the ability for it to be used against trans people in the state doing any kind of performance, drag or not. And as far as how this is being sold, you have Republicans like Representative Chris Todd claiming that this is a common-sense child safety bill, with Todd previously condemning what was advertised as a family-friendly drag show that was part of a pride event as being a form of child abuse. But with this, we've seen Democrats pushing back, essentially saying, have you fully lost your minds? Or at the very least, saying that this is kind of just about stoking the culture war, that this doesn't actually do much other than villainize the LGBTQ community. With the likes of Representative Gloria Johnson noting that the state already has obscenity laws in writing. We are wasting time and tax dollars on this anti-drag bill. They say it's protecting children. That's a lie. We already have a law that makes it illegal to be obscene in front of kids. It applies no matter what you are wearing. This bill is only to target LGBTQ individuals. Or so just one of many saying this is redundant and it could actually lead to further attacks and harassment against the LGBTQ plus population in Tennessee. With the legal director of the Human Rights Campaign saying, the Tennessee legislature has done nothing but spread hate, misinformation, and extremism. Drag is a long-standing celebratory form of entertainment and a meaningful source of employment for many across the state. Yet rather than focus on actual policy issues facing Tennesseans, politicians would rather spend their time and effort misconstruing age-appropriate performances at a library to pass as many anti-LGBTQ plus bills as they can. Dangerous rhetoric like this has real consequences. With a drag performer known as Peppermint talking to Reuters and saying bills like this, they're based on false and dangerous rhetoric, and saying it's a straw man, it's a boogie monster, it's not really a thing, so they make up stories. They target us, dehumanize us, villainize us, and then they pass legislation against us. And this, of course, not just happening in Tennessee. By mid-February, there were at least 14 states with drag bills in the works. And while the fact that there's a culture war around this isn't surprising, what is very interesting is this kind of legislation is getting a very big notable push from conservative Christian lobbying groups like Family Policy Alliance, with some measures even modeled after the Texas abortion law allowing citizens to sue venues that host drag shows they believe violate state law. And some are just written in ways that would ban more than just drag shows, right? They could broadly apply to a variety of performances. With the director of PEN America's U.S. Free Expression Program saying, it's not clear to me that a trans man, for example, who wrote a book would be able to do a book reading at a local bookstore under these bills. A high school couldn't perform a Shakespeare play like Twelfth Night because Twelfth Night explicitly in its plot included a woman dressed as a man. Right, so they have the potential to create these gray areas where even more totally non-offensive performances could become illegal. But also another thing we're seeing with this rhetoric is that it's kind of normalized the far right targeting drag shows. Right, we've seen things like in November in North Carolina, the Proud Boys disrupted a drag event with the organizer 
of that event, saying they were very hostile and openly harassing patrons, saying they were trying to intimidate everyone, calling them groomers, among other names. And throughout 2022, the Proud Boys were part of dozens of anti-LGBTQ demonstrations, several of which specifically targeted drag-related events. There are reports showing that weapons are turning up at these protests more and more frequently. And that's where today's show ends. Thank you for watching, like, and being subscribed to these daily dives into the news. Remember this week, you can come back to the channel every single day. There's gonna be a brand new video for you. So as always, my name's Philip DeFranco. You've just been filled in. I love yo faces and I'll see you tomorrow.